Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll be looking at uh, a number of passages this evening. This is one of them. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. This is God's word. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. May God bless the reading of his holy word. We will all only live one time, and all of us have only a short window of time to glorify Christ in this dark and sinful world. And the time that we spend in the world that is still under the curse of sin, it's unique against the backdrop of eternity. What we're able to do here, we'll never have an opportunity to do again once we die. When the believer is resurrected and glorified and brought into the glorious new heavens and the new earth, he will never experience the desire for or even the presence of sin again. It will be a universe in which righteousness dwells, we're told in 2 Peter 3. It will be like being inside of joy and happiness. But before that great day of rejoicing inaugurates our eternity in the full enjoying of God, we dwell in this hard and difficult world. Jesus once preached these memorable words in Matthew 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. The fools of this world walk in the easy and broad way that leads to destruction, and they have a lot of company, for there are many who care nothing about eternal things and who flatter themselves with vain thoughts of going to heaven. But the true disciple of Christ gladly obeys his master, and he enters by the narrow gate, and he willingly walks the difficult path. The unending fight with sin is a tough battle. The battle with ourselves to be more like Christ, it's exhausting. Trying to understand and apply scripture to your theology, to your actions, it's a monumental task. But with the help of God's grace and with Christ is our focus and his gospel, we can be godly people. It is possible to be a godly man. It is possible to be a godly woman. And with God's help, we will be. We recently covered Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. I want to read this passage again in your hearing as it's perpetually relevant to us. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. What does scripture mean? What does God mean by every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us? These sad biblical phrases are given to us by the Holy Spirit, and they apply to every Christian uh, who lives, man or woman. But for men in particular, 
There are specific battles. There are specific weights and sins which easily ensnare us and prevent us from being great men of God, which we can be with God's help. If we can learn to defeat these things, these weights and sins that easily ensnare us, we can be men of great influence in the world. We can be men worth imitating. We can exert an influence for godliness. We can win souls to Christ. We have this one opportunity to live this one life that God has given us. We can be wise or we can be fools. We can be humble, teachable, self-critical, or we can be stubborn and prideful, foolish and unteachable. And I trust that the men in this room who do know the Lord are serious in their desire to follow him, and that if we see weights attached to us, if we have sins that we are ensnared by, we want to cut those weights off, and we want to cast aside those sins which have ensnared us. If the things covered in this sermon this evening leave you discouraged and down, I want to encourage you, you will overcome them in Christ. You will overcome these things in Christ. With men, change is hardly possible at all. But with God, all things are possible. These sins I'm going to talk about this evening, there's three of them. They're marriage destroyers, and they're life destroyers. They're life destroyers, too. There are many sins that men struggle with, which function as weights or snares that prevent them from moving forward and being what God designed them to be. But I want to focus on three that are, I think are the three worst. Number one, sexual immorality. Number two, pride. And number three, selfishness. And so first, sexual immorality. We read 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 6. Human sexuality is a precious and special gift from God. Sexuality is sacred. We often rightly speak of the sanctity of human life. And why do we do that? Because a human being is not in the same category as a puppy or a plant or a flea. Human beings are special. We're elevated. We are important to God because we bear his image and his likeness in our very persons. To harm that image of God is to strike out at God himself. And that's one reason Satan is a murderer. That's one of the only ways he can strike out at God is to kill his images. And where you see murder taking place, there you see the work of Satan. It's the same with the sexual component of who we are as God's image bearers. Sexuality is a good gift from God, one that's to be enjoyed and celebrated by a man and a woman together in a marriage covenant. In that context, sexuality is sacred. Outside of that context, sexuality is cursed. The Word of God teaches us a very simple and important truth in this matter. We just read it in 1 Thessalonians 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain. None. That each of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. Jesus preaching to people in his monumental Sermon on the Mount was talking to people who probably thought that they kept God's commandments, that they had actually satisfied their requirements by the way they lived their lives. But Jesus raises the law to the nth power. Matthew 5, 27, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And it's the key to understanding this, that the heart of man, 
The heart of man is in view with obeying God's law. Every time we see another news story about another well-known Christian leader who has fallen into gross sin of some kind with no warning whatsoever, nobody saw it coming, we have to remind ourselves of a simple truth. What we saw was the tail end of a long series of compromises in the heart. That biblical term there for heart, that word cardia, it means heart, man, inner life. I remember writing in Greek the word cardia on a flashcard and on the back, heart, um, man, inner life. And I thought, inner life, wow. Interesting way of translating cardia. He's already committed adultery with her in his inner life, is what Jesus is saying. Inner life. What goes on in our inner life? It's like we have an outward life where we show people one life, and then there's this inner life that goes on in our minds, and our hearts. And we can sit here in this room, and we can think about anything we want. Anything we want. And not a single person here can know what we're thinking about unless we tell them. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.11, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Exactly. Nobody knows what you're thinking about right now except you and God. All of us have an inner life, have a thought life. And that inner life, that theater of our minds, is a place where adultery can be committed according to Jesus. It's an amazing thing. We're all familiar with that. We know, yes, lust is a sin. Everyone knows Matthew 5, 27 to 30. It's quoted constantly in, in Christian circles. We all know that. But he's saying it really is adultery. It is adultery. Private fantasies and thoughts are often way more bold than anything that we would ever consider actually doing, right? The outward sins that proved to be a person's undoing, they began long ago in their inner life, in their heart, says Jesus. What we saw was the final manifestation of deeply embedded sin in the individual's heart. And the simple fact is, it had probably been there ever so carefully hidden and concealed for quite some time. The Word of God speaks directly to this phenomenon. The prayers of the psalm writers, Psalm 19, 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, my inner life, let the meditation of my inner life be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Psalm 90, verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. I mean, that was a hymn Israel sang. Like, praise God, you've set all of our secret sins in the light of your countenance. You can see them all. Praise God. Romans 2.16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. I want to tell you something. One of the great marks of true conversion, one of the marks that you really are a Christian, is that you will be troubled genuinely troubled and disgusted by the things in your heart that are known only to God. The things that you have hidden successfully from every other human being in your life, but you know that God knows about them, and it troubles you. Hypocrites, pretenders, typically don't care about what God sees in their hearts. The Christians do care. Christians mourn over their secret thought life. You'll be troubled and grieved by that which no other living person has ever seen, but you know that God sees it. Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to him to whom we must give an account. While all men know this is true in the deepest part of who they are, many find a vain comfort in the fact that they know that no man can see their hearts, that no one can see their inner life. They'll lie to others and lie to themselves regarding such things. And it's a vital point for men especially to know this, 
<coughs> women cannot digest lies. Everybody hates liars. A lying tongue is an abomination to God. Husbands or husbands-to-be, if you have a secret fantasy life that is immoral or a secret pornography addiction, you will get caught eventually. You will get caught eventually. When God commanded Israel to arm themselves and to drive out the Canaanites, according to the commandment that God gave them, God promises them in Numbers 32, 22, this land shall be your possession before the Lord. If you do what I tell you, if you drive everybody out, like I said, this land will be yours according to what I told you. And then the next verse says, but if you do not do so, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Paul wrote something similar, that, that stirring verse, 1 Timothy 5, 24. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. The sins of others follow later. In Matthew 5, 27 to 30, Jesus is pointing out that the law of God always required inward conformity, not just outward conformity. And there were a lot of people standing there who probably could have said, well, I've never committed adultery, never physically against my wife, I, 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 so haven't I kept that commandment? And Jesus' point is, no, you have not kept it. None of us have. But they've all committed adultery in their hearts, in their minds, in the inner man, the inner life. Jesus goes on to, to say some stirring things. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's more profitable for you that one of your members perish and that your whole body be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now our Lord's advice here is rather startling, isn't it? If you know what the things are that cause this sin in your life, Jesus' orders are real clear. Eradicate it. Get rid of it. Destroy it. Obviously, he's not talking about literally cutting out your eyes or cutting off your hands. He is, however, speaking of ridding yourself of things like internet access or cable channels or driving down certain roads which have bad stores on them and things like that. I heard a pastor share a story about a young man had a real problem with going into bad stores with pornography. And this young man told the pastor, yeah, every time I walk down the street, it's it's like I'm just lured right into that place. And the pastor said, have you thought about taking a different route home? When someone comes to me and wants me to cure them of alcohol addiction, the first thing I tell them is, stop drinking. You hear our Lord's words here? What is the thing that, that makes it easier for you to sin? Hebrews 12.1 uses the English phrase, easily ensnares. The, the sin that so easily ensnares us. We are easily ensnared by certain sins, and we know what those sins are. The standard lexicon of the Greek New Testament defines that term translated easily ensnares also as easily distracting. The sin that so easily distracts us. Easily ensnares and distracts us from keeping our eyes forward, from pondering the path of our feet, from walking in God's ways. Whatever that thing is that makes it easier to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you, Cut it off. Cast it from you. Throw it away. People so often complain when they're given good pastoral advice. Okay, well, we'll get rid of the laptop then. We'll, we'll cancel your internet subscription. 
Uh, call the cable company and have them cancel that TV service. Get rid of beer and drugs and whatever else. And people will talk about how inconvenient that is. Well, I pay all my bills through the internet. I have to have the internet. I, I watch a lot of educational stuff on the History Channel. I, I watch Ancient Aliens, and I'm learning so much. I have to have cable. I'm just using my Christian liberty to have a few beers. Don't give me this legalism stuff. You hear what Jesus' illustrations are really getting at, though? It's better to be inconvenienced and be holy in these ways. I mean, the way he says it, than to die and go to hell. It's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Yes, not having one of your eyes would be awfully inconvenient, but it's worth that inconvenience to stay holy in that area. Not having one of your hands would be very inconvenient, but it's worth that inconvenience to stay holy in this area. What's Jesus' point? What's his point here? The point is, you need to be serious. Men need to be serious and radical about avoiding this sin. Brothers, if you're playing with this kind of sin, I'd like to remind all of us of what we already know if we're a Christian. We already know this, but we need to hear it again. Proverbs 6.27 Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? Sadly for some, they've been playing with fire for so long they can't feel a thing anymore. People sleep on a bed of hot coals and it doesn't even hurt them. So deep are the calluses. Brothers, every time we give in to sin, it's like one more layer of callus over our heart, over our inner life. When that which used to startle us, that which used to frighten us, it no longer startles us. It no longer frightens us because we're callous and indifferent. May the living Christ shake us out of such folly if that's the case. One of the marks of the Holy Spirit is at work to convert sinners is he peels away the callus so you can feel it burn again. If you're a Christian and you've been giving in to certain sins for a long time and you're, you're callous against them, one of the things the Spirit will do working through his word is peel away some of the callus so you can feel the pain again. <laughs> what about this? It's time to get radical. It's time to inconvenience ourselves. It's time to learn to live missing one eye and missing one hand. And Jesus taught us that it's worth it. So brothers, if there are things you've tolerated in your life in this area, I just want to tell you what Jesus said. Get rid of it. Cut it off and throw it out. Be done with it. The blood of Christ is sufficient, praise his name, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to empower us to boldly do battle against such things and in the power of his might to defeat them. How can we live in and communicate the love and joy of Christ if our minds are constantly in a sewer of iniquity? How can our outer life, how can our fruit be of any use to anyone if our inner life is filled with vice and evil? We have a choice, man. We have a choice. I heard a pastor tell a story. It just jarred me. This story really jarred me. He was visiting a member of his congregation on his deathbed. This guy was 78 years old. <clears throat> the pastor asked him if he was ready to die and face God and the man said he was. He believed gospel and trusted in Christ alone for his salvation. He was confident. He was forgiven. He was justified by the blood and righteousness of Christ, and his whole hope rested there. And the pastor said the man suddenly had a serious change in his demeanor and began to cry. Seventy-eight-year-old man laying there crying. The pastor was taken aback a little bit. 
and asked him what's, what's the matter, and he said, I just wish at some point in my life I could have gotten myself over my love of pornography. The pastor was taken aback by that admission. This man just a few days away from eternity. The dying elderly Christian man said, I just was never able to get that sin under control. Brothers, this is one of the sins that absolutely kills men, paralyzes them, makes them useless to God. It's one of the battles that, that destroys joy, stunts growth, and turns our hearts into a putrid, sour gray. But there's freedom from it. And if you need help, see me, see an elder, see a trusted Christian friend, and stand shoulder to shoulder with someone. You can overcome these things in Christ. So that's sexual immorality. That's one of the worst ones. We live in a culture that has ruined marriage, destroyed sexuality, turned it into a commercial business, and really robbed a lot of married people of what ought to be a source of tremendous joy and strength in their marriage relationships. It's a real tragedy. The second thing that is a relationship destroyer and a real marriage destroyer is pride. Pride. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. God hates pride. James 4.6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. A wise author once wrote this, there's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine they are guilty of themselves. I've heard people admit that they're bad-tempered, that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they're cowards. I don't think I've ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There's no fault that makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit. <clears throat> and the virtue opposite to it is humility. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind, end quote. Proverbs 6, 16, the first sin which the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him. What's the first one? A proud look. A nose up in the air, a prideful look from someone. God hates it. It's an abomination to him. If you want to assure yourself and all the world that you're an enemy of your creator, <clears throat> be proud and arrogant and unteachable. Be proud and haughty about who and what you are. <clears throat> Advertise and parade about for all to see your accomplishments, your great learning, your beauty. <clears throat> all who do such can know for sure that God is their sworn enemy. Why? Because they insist on competing with God's right to have all worship, praise, honor, and adoration given to him alone. Pride is, without question, one of the most irrational and foolish parts about being a sinner. We have nothing that was not sovereignly given to us by God. Nothing. We are nothing that was not given to us by our Creator. Yet we boast and glory as if we can take credit for those things. The proud man is the father of fools. Pride is an abomination to God. And yet, men have a mighty struggle with it. We all have a mighty struggle with it. The more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than someone else. 
It is the comparison that makes us proud. Do married people do that? They compete with each other and want to be better than, than each other and have more of something than the other? Oh, yeah, sure, you bet. One of the elements, uh, once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. And thus, what is the only source of pride in the heart of man? The desire to be and to appear to be better than others. Such ought to be vile to the Christian, and yet this filthy desire persists in us. No less than three times in God's word, we are told explicitly that the creator, the one true living God who exists, hates pride. And he opposes prideful people. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Three times, Proverbs 3.34, James 4.6, and 1 Peter 5.5. 5. He is opposed to the, proud, to the prideful. What is the remedy for pride? How do we get away from being prideful? Turn your eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ and study and know who he is and his work. Philippians 2, verse 5, Paul said, let this mind be in you. As opposed to pride, let this one be in you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Meditate on passages like that and others like Psalm 103:14, For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and his place remembers it no more. Whenever our hearts begin to swell with pride for whatever reason, and everyone here who's good at anything knows exactly what I'm talking about, when our hearts start to swell with pride, remind yourself how foolish that is. <clears throat> remind yourself what you are. We're dust. Remind ourselves of, of what will be in 100 years. We'll all be dead and gone. Man exists for the glory of Christ, not himself. And yet we struggle so much. We want recognition and praise for ourselves. What a testimony to our sinfulness. We constantly forget who made us. Remember the old 100, you know, Psalm 100. It is, it is you who made us and not we ourselves. What could be more obvious than that? What, and yet, why do we need to sing that? Because we're prideful. We're prideful. We constantly forget who made us. We forget who and what we are. We forget why we exist and why we were redeemed. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Who makes you differ from one another? What do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Pride. Pride's a marriage killer. People get prideful in their marriage. They compete with one another. They try to one-up each other. It's a terrible thing. Don't be proud in your marriage. Lastly, selfishness. James 3.14 says, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Philippians 2, 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. That's hard to do, isn't it? Everyone around me is better than me. Everyone around me is better than me, more important than me. Luke 9, 23, he said to them all, Jesus said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The consistent call of God's word to the converted man 
to the converted woman who is a disciple of Christ is, you must not be selfish any longer. You must not be self-seeking. You must not have selfish ambition to further or glorify your own name. But rather, we all have to die. We die to ourselves and die to selfish desires. The call of Christ to a man of God is to repent and believe in Jesus and follow him. And the mark of a man who really does this is that he's not characterized by selfishness in his desires, actions, or priorities. The people that God has asked him to love and called him to love the most, they are more important than what he wants to do with his time. They are more important to him. He puts the needs and desires of others, especially his wife, before his own. And if he's single, he does this with his parents, his siblings, his friends, his church family. Their needs are more important than mine, just like Christ did. Their happiness is above mine. If he's married, he's devoted to studying his wife in order to find out how to make her happy, how to love her better. He lays aside spending excessive time on hobbies and other interests and focuses his attention on her. Perhaps more than any other sin in married life, selfishness is the heart of all marital issues. Why do women feel neglected and unloved and misunderstood and not known? Because their husbands are selfish. They don't care as much about making their wife happy as they care about doing the things they want to do. It really is that simple. This is why the word of God, listen, it calls self-seeking selfishness in scripture by the Holy Spirit is called demonic. It's demonic to be selfish. Earthy, demonic, sensual. And the scripture says in James 3.14, if that's what drives our heart, we're lying against the truth. Men, we must have a heart for other people. We must have genuine care and love and concern first for others. One of the reasons we all get so down in the dumps and depressed and, and struggle is because our thoughts are so much confined to ourselves. Where if we fix them on Christ and on the people he's asked us to love, we're not going to have time to notice what's wrong with us. This whole John Wayne conquer the West Lone Ranger looking out for number one mentality has got to be crucified and die with Christ. When you think about getting home from work or from school or from practice, don't be thinking about what you want to do to unwind or decompress or relax. Think about how can I love my wife better? How can I encourage my children better? Do my children know the Lord? What do they need from me? How have I failed them? Where do I need to change? What do I need to repent of? Lord Jesus, help me. Help me redeem my time help, for the days are evil. Help me be a walking example of the gospel to my wife and children. Help me be a walking example of the gospel to my parents, to my older and my younger siblings, to my teachers, to my coaches, to my friends, to my pastor, to my elders, to my fellow church people. Brothers, life's not about me. It's not about us. It's about glorifying Christ, and he commands us to make life about the people around us. It's about loving Christ by putting others first, putting your wife first. It's about letting go of bitterness and anger at the people who have wronged you. It's about focusing on loving others as Christ has loved you. It's about modeling the very kind of selflessness that Jesus did. If you're a Christian, that kind of selfless behavior has got to be what beats in our heart. Remember, there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have a heart for people, for images of God, especially the one they're married to. 1 John 4, 7, listen, 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. You love your fellow Christians? John says, that's how you know you're, you're a believer. That's how you know you've passed from death to life. You love other Christian people. He who does not love his brother abides in death. You know, we've been nearing the end of Luke's gospel for some time now. And we've seen the institution of the Lord's Supper and the disciples arguing about which of them was going to be the greatest. And there's an incredible display of humility made by the holy, righteous, sovereign king of the universe, which we all ought to bear in mind if we would be his disciples, if we would be Christian people. And men, Christian men, listen closely to the word of God. This is the opposite of selfishness. We have no claim to people's admiration or praise. We have no right to be selfish. The one and only king who had the right to demand and receive all praise, honor, adoration, and worship at all times did this. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas, Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. If you look at a harmony of the Gospels and put things in exact chronological order, this washing of his disciples' feet was probably his response to them arguing about which one of them was going to be the greatest. He washes their filthy feet. And then he says in John 13, 14, If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now weigh that carefully in your mind. We all need to weigh that carefully. If we know these things, blessed are we if we do them. You see, brothers and sisters, it's not enough to hear and think, boy, that, that's, that's convicting stuff. That's powerful stuff, you know, what Jesus did there. James 1, 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Don't hear passages and go, huh, that's profound, that's pretty deep. Be a doer of the word. The word of God cuts to the heart, it changes us. The scripture says in James 1, 23, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, of, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. We're commanded by the word of God, lay aside every weight. Every weight, not just the big ones or the ones that you think are a problem, every one of them. Lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. How do we do that? According to the scripture, Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus. He's the source of it all. It's a Christ-centered call to a sanctified life. The one who endured the cross and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're called to consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that we don't become weary and discouraged. Have you ever felt weary and discouraged? You feel weary and discouraged today. If there was ever a man who had the right to feel weary and discouraged, it was Jesus. But he pressed on. He pressed on 
Why? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That's what will keep depression and weariness and sadness and difficulties from making us discouraged in our souls. When we awake in the morning and someone asks us, hey, how are you doing today? And our answer is something like, existing. Please take heart by looking at Jesus and all that he endured is what scripture tells us. Have you ever been discouraged in your soul? What does it mean to look unto Jesus? We're told, lest you become discouraged, look unto Jesus. Here's what that means, to look unto Jesus. It's the opposite of looking to yourself. Looking unto there means rely on, trust him, honor, revere, worship, love, admire, believe him. Rely on his power, his strength. Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one who begins and finishes our faith in him. He's the one who's the source and conclusion of our faith. We are his redemptive project, and he will not fail to make us more like him. We meditate upon the perfection of his finished work. Indeed, God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ, and therefore we keep our eyes fixed upon him, upon his cross, upon the gospel, upon his holiness, his endurance of shame and opposition, his defeating of every temptation he faced, his holiness, and the perfection of his saving work in our behalf by which we're justified legally and forever in the sight of God. Remember Peter? Peter's one of only two people to have walked on water. When Jesus called him out there onto the water in the middle of the storm, Peter, if it really is you, tell me to come out there and meet you. Okay, come, come on out. And Peter walked on water for a few seconds, I guess. And as long as he was looking at Jesus, he was fine. Remember what the passage says? What did he do? He quit looking at Jesus and noticed all these waves and water, and he started to sink. What an illustration of what happens to us in our own struggle with sin and sanctification. Took his eyes off Christ and started to sink and cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus saves him. And Where's your faith, Peter? Why did you doubt? Never take your eyes off Jesus. His grace will sustain us. His example will guide us. His cross work and his imputed righteousness alone can make us right with God. Consider him. Consider him. Remember him. Meditate upon what he did, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So I want to encourage you all. Never take your eyes off of the author and the finisher of our faith as you battle against these things. Never take your eyes off of Christ, your prophet, your priest, and king, the one whose work alone is able to save you perfectly and to give you that blessed hope and assurance of justification, forgiveness, adoption, and the final end, eternal life in heaven. Paul understood that so well. He, he wrote in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Sexual immorality, pride, selfishness will try their best to prevent you from having a God-centered marriage, from enjoying your married life. How do we overcome those things? Fix your eyes on Christ and on his glorious accomplishments, his grace, and his finished saving work. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your Son, for the gift of righteousness that is given to us by faith in him alone. Help us to overcome these things, these sins that we struggle with, sexual immorality, pride, selfishness, and we pray that you'd protect us from them and help us to be more vigilant in being watchful against them and to keep our eyes fixed upon Christ alone who can help us. In his name we pray, amen.